The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I am Sam Abul Samad. So we're going to revisit a little bit of a topic this week, but also we've got uh, some some big doings in Europe to talk about. Uh, But first, of course, we're going to start with what we're driving. And so, Sam, what have you been wheeling around this week? Uh, I have an Acura MDX, the 2017 MDX, which is uh, Acura's big uh, SUV crossover thing. Um, And so this one, it got a refresh for the 2017 model year, and it's the first Acura to get uh, their new grill uh, that they debuted last year on the Precision Concept uh, at the Detroit Auto Show last year. Uh, so the the beak uh, or the, the buck tooth is, is finally gone, at least from this one, and it'll be disappearing from the rest of the Acura lineup over the next year or so as the as the rest of their models are updated or redesigned. Uh, probably the next one to get the change will be the RDX, which I think is going to be getting a a redesign it's due for a redesign uh in the next probably in the next few months we may see it as soon as the uh new york auto show next or uh in april um but uh yeah the the mdx is overall i I like it a lot um you know for for a big three-row suv there are a few details i'm not crazy about um the probably the most prominent one because the mdx uh shares its platform with uh the honda pilot uh which got a redesign uh, about a year and a half ago and one of the unfortunate features that it shares with the pilot is the shift mechanism you know it's yet another case of designers uh and or engineers (laughs) um trying trying to be creative with uh how they do you know these electronic shifters for their automatic transmissions and uh this is probably one of the weirdest and most non-intuitive i've tried have, have you driven buttons. i have driven the i haven't driven well, it's, this it's, new one but uh, yeah it's it's well yeah, have you driven the pilot yeah it's, yeah, it's the buttons yeah right? well it's it's a combination of buttons and switches so you have um for park there's you know 
kind of a rectangular button. And then for reverse to get reverse, there's um, a switch that you pull back on. That's almost like a, a window switch. And then behind that, you have the drive slash sport button, which is a round button that looks, you know, looks like the stop start engine stop start button. Um, you know, so I mean, it's, it's all these completely different, you know, totally incongruous uh, elements. It, it just it, it doesn't make sense. Um, you know, I mean, if you <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I just I don't like it. I didn't well, like it on the pilot and I don't like it on this one. I mean, my impression is that they're trying to bring a little bit of NSX or race car heritage, especially given the way they've positioned the brand in the marketing uh, to every Acura. You know, this feels very much like the kind yeah, of but this debuted on the on the Honda on the pilot. No, I I know. But it just like it feels like the kind of stuff we've seen you know, we first saw these kind of buttony shifters on um, racing cars, you know, the, the back, yeah. I don't know, a decade or two ago. And I don't know, I'm not saying it's, I'm not, I guess I'm not trying to actually make an excuse for it because, you know, they're fixing what wasn't broken. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, and so the MDX2, like the other thing that I get kind of disappointed about with it, um, even though the, the new one looks a lot better, uh, it just, I don't, I, especially now that there's the pilot has been so redone. Like I, I just, I'm not sure I can justify the MDX. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not, you know, aside from the design, you know, it's not notably better than a pilot, uh, in any particular way. Uh, you know, if you get a, a high end pilot, you know, it's got nice leather interior and everything as well. So there's, yeah, and in fact, um, one of the features that the pilot has that the MDX does not, because this was this was a mid-cycle refresh, but not a complete redesign, uh, which the pilot was. You know, so the the MDX is probably going to be another another year or two before it gets a complete rework. Um, the the pilot, you know, has Honda's uh, touch radio which has support for Android Auto and Apple CarPlay, um, the MDX still has the older Acura infotainment system, which is a, a dual screen setup. So you have a, a lower screen, uh, which is a touch screen with haptic feedback when you press the buttons on it. And then there's a second screen up above it that's set, you know, recessed deep under a hood. Uh, and so when you use the nav, the, 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 the map is displayed on the upper screen and then the audio controls and uh, heated seats and, and some of the climate control stuff is displayed on the lower screen. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's the interface they have on that, on that older um, audio system is, is not great. It, it's really kind of counterintuitive. Um, and uh, it's just it, it just doesn't work as well as the newer stuff that they have on the Hondas and will presumably have on the the next generation of uh, Acuras as well. Yeah, that whole like double screen thing was always so. So confusing to me and the new touchscreen audio system that Honda's rolled out is also not good i don't maybe they can give it up and the, the, the only else yeah well the the only the only real complaint i have about their touch radio setup um is just the uh the the touch controls for the volume that are on the left hand side of the screen but even that is gone now um on their latest on the, the crv and the odyssey 
they've put back uh, a rotary volume knob on there. Uh, so you don't you don't even have to deal with the touch for the volume controls. So the rest of it, I'm I'm fine with uh, as long as I have my my Android Auto in there uh, and I can plug in my phone and, and use that interface. Uh, but the you know the the rest of the vehicle you know is fine. Um, you know Honda always does great seats. You know I'm very very happy with the the seats and the uh, MDX. Um, the powertrain is is lovely. You know it's their 290 horsepower three point five liter direct injected v6 nine speed automatic transmission it's got plenty of get up and go um you know ride quality is is fine for uh, for a big three row suv um you know so i i don't have any other notable complaints about the thing other than um they basically the infotainment system um and the uh what else? Oh, and the shifter. Uh, everything else is pretty good. You know, it's got plenty of plenty of room in the the second row. Third row is a little little on the tight side. You know, it's definitely more for occasional use and for for small kids. Um, you know, you don't want to. You don't. You definitely don't want to uh, be in there for a road trip. You know, for you know, if you're any older than about ten. Uh, you know, teenagers in that third row are, are probably not going to be too happy. Uh, but. You know, you can drop down those third row seats and have lots of cargo space in the back if you don't need the uh, the extra two seats. Um, so, you know, overall, I, you know, I like driving it and the uh, the ADAS features, the driver assist features um, work really nicely. The adaptive cruise control is a full stop and go system, uh, which is nice in, in traffic. Um, and yeah. then the, uh, the lane I'm keeping so system works well, too. I'm surprised that some automakers, especially luxury automakers, uh, sell automated crews that's not stop and go like that. Like it, it well, gives what, up. <laughs> yeah. Well, what what it is the the reason why you know earlier adaptive cruise systems um, cut out at about um, somewhere typically somewhere between ten and twenty miles an hour is uh, the the range the measuring range of the radar. Um, so they were, uh, the, you had longer range radars running at a different frequency. Um, and it had a longer, longer range, um, that it could measure, uh, down the road, but, um, uh, because of the, the frequency, it couldn't give you very accurate measurements up close, uh, and at shorter range. And so the newer systems that have um, full stop and go capability, what they've done is they actually use two different radar sensors. They've got a long range radar and a short range radar, and it switches between those. So at lower speeds, it uses the short range radar, and that's what gives you the full stop and go capability. And then once you get above a certain speed threshold, uh, then it switches over to the long range radar. That's interesting. So I guess that's something as they go ahead and update their their models and you know, give them their refreshes and their, their redesigns that will start to trickle into the cars. I, I think. Yeah. I mean, it, most, most, most newer models, most cars that have been introduced in the last three or four years have, yeah. you know, full speed capability. Um, so, you know, probably, you know, within the next two to three years, you know, everything with ACC on there will probably have full speed capability. Well, that explains an awful lot about the car I spent the most time with, uh, this week, which was the, um, the Lexus ES300H, so I had the ES300 hybrid, um, and that had one of those systems where, you know, it would just kind of crap out. It'd be like in traffic, it would just give you a couple of beeps and be like, nope, you take the wheel. 
<laughs> like that's exactly where I want automated crews is in stop and go. Um, yeah, I mean, that's where it works great. Yeah. Um, so and I was a little surprised by the fact that it, it didn't have that functionality. Um, but, you know, I, I I will chalk it up to the, the ES 300H being uh, a little bit longer in the tooth but it's not it's a, it's at the old. end of its life cycle let's put it that way yeah but now i'm stumbling a little because i'm not i'm not sure that it is um within the next year it'll probably get replaced like if it if we don't see the next generation es this year then we'll probably see it uh next year beginning of next year by the detroit auto show it's that's when it's going to move to the new tnga yeah platform so we yeah I, so we just got the new camry last month at, at the detroit auto show and we'll probably get the the next gen ES, which is based on the same platform, um, no later than next year's okay. Detroit show, and so maybe sooner it, than that. Yeah, then it is at the end of its life, and I'm just confused because I knew that we had the new Camry, and I was like, no, they've already reinterested. Okay, now it all makes a lot more sense, and that's about all I have to say about the ES 300H because it's that kind of car where it's just like people ask me what how you know how do you like it, what do you think about it, and I'm like I I don't know. <laughs> you know o- over the years um people have have often compl- you know referred to the uh the camry as the definition of a beige car you know something that just disappears into the background but even even compared to you know um compared to the es even the camry is, tends to be a little more exciting you know at least you know in recent years in its in its design you know the the es you know it's a nice enough car but there is absolutely zero excitement about it well and that's the best thing or the most descriptive thing i could say about it is like it is the perfect car for people who uh don't want anything to do with cars it you get in you especially in the hybrid you just you get in you press the button you know you're going to get 30 plus miles per gallon no matter pretty much anything you do it's going to get like between 32 and 37 miles per gallon uh this one i got like 34 and a half and it it spent a lot of time we had snow and stuff so it spent a lot of time at low speeds sort of idling and keeping the heat going and all that stuff it's it's Um, the ultimate premium appliance car yeah i mean it's it's nice it has some nice features it it is starting to feel a little bit behind the curve in, in some ways um, like we talked about with the cruise and Toyota's infotainment, the Entune system isn't great. Uh, but you know, it has it's nice, nice leather seating and you know, the, all of the stuff is, is there, you know, and it's comfortable, it's quiet. Uh, it, it drives completely unobtrusively. Um, actually, you know, one of the things that used to bug me is the way Toyota's would, and, and. I keep saying Toyotas, they're going to get mad at me. Uh, <laughs> Lexus. Lex, yeah, Lexus vehicles, like they always seem to wander a lot at, and on the highway and stuff. They seem to have tuned that out now where this is just basically it's you you point the thing and you press the pedal and it goes. It's the ultimate kind of non-driving driving experience, which is exactly what, again, exactly what the buyer who buys these things wants out of them. And I can I can see how, you know, it's really attractive. It does nothing wrong. It has no bad habits. And that's part of the reason why it has no habits at all. Right. And that's part of the reason why I can't get passionate about it. That doesn't mean that it's a bad car. It actually means that it's a brilliant car because it's really, really hard to do that. Uh, It's worst habit now is just, again, you know, it's it's starting to age out and they're going to fix that. So, yeah, um, I mean, you know, it's 
it you it's definitely the kind of car where you want to have you know on your phone you know an app that reminds you where you parked it because you know it it will <laughs> it will literally disappear into the background but like you say i mean for for a lot of customers that's exactly what they want you know they they want something that is going to be absolutely reliable you know start up every time they get in the car um take them exactly where they need to go with no fuss no muss you know coddle them you know a little bit you know in the interior you know have have nice materials in the interior you know nicer materials than you'll find in a camry but um you know all, all perfectly well executed um but as you say with just zero passion yeah and and that's okay i mean there are other things to be passionate about in life um the thing that kind of sticks in my car is like this is this was a fifty one thousand dollar car um for 51 grand, you can get something that is actually nicer inside and has a bit more personality if that's what you want. Um, and you can get something that ticks both of those boxes and is also just as reliable too. So there's, there's choice out there. Um, I mean, even if you were to just, you know, go to, go to like infinity or, you know, Genesis, we were talking about the Genesis mm-hmm. cars we were driving. You can get a G80 for 51 grand. That's going to be a very impressive car for that price. It's it's a slightly different thing, but still, uh, you know. So yeah, I mean, it's not going to it's not going to be as you know as fuel efficient, um, right. but you know, on on all all other counts, you know, it'll probably it'll suit your needs just fine. Yeah, it, it won't be a hybrid, but I mean, it's it's great that there's choice, and so that that actually brings me to the next vehicle I had, which. Um, I I want to I guess just preface it with with saying like this was a 2016 that was still in the fleet so um 17s are not likely to be all that different but just keep in mind that I was evaluating a car with sort of you know, a long fleet life behind it so uh but I had a a Mitsubishi Outlander Sport SEL AWC so it was all wheel <laughs> drive um well actually I think for 2017 the Outlander Sport or maybe it was for 16. It did get a slight refresh of its front fascia. Does, does yours have some chrome on the front fascia? Yeah, it, it got refreshed. So Mitsubishi keeps tweaking these. It keeps tweaking all its models, especially visually like every year, because that's what you have to do when you, you know, their, their product is, they don't have a ton of new products. So um, <laughs> you could say that they're, they're doing the best with the, what they've got, I guess. Uh, you know, I, this vehicle, made me think of an interesting point uh thus far during my career as an automotive journalist there have been very few constants uh you know like every year the auto shows yeah but they're they're filled with with new stuff you know new production models new flights of fancy um we actually see those concept cars wind up on the roads in two three years that's kind of the only other constant sort of thing i can think of but even that like that's a constant of change uh, for more than a decade, <laughs> one vehicle has remained as constant as it gets in the automotive world, and that is the Mitsubishi Outlander and Outlander Sport. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Um, last week at the uh, Chicago Auto Show, I was talking to Todd Lass of Automobile Magazine uh, about exactly that. Uh, you know, we were, we were at the Mitsubishi press conference where, you know, they had they were they unveiled um a limited edition outlander sport which i'm still not entirely sure exactly what was different about it i think it had uh like 
black wheels. That was it. That was that was the overall theme of the Chicago show. It had it black, black wheels. wheels. Yeah. yeah, but it's cold. Cold's coming know, back. We, we, yeah, we were we were <laughs> we were talking. Yeah, we were discussing. You know how long the Outlander sport's been around, and you're right. It has been almost ten years since it debuted with no. I mean, you know, some minor tweaks to the the front fascia and the lights, but essentially unchanged for ten years. Yeah, I mean, so the Outlander sport's a little younger. Um, it's it's a shorter wheelbase, but it's I mean the Outlander itself has been around for a long time um, on the same basic platform. So it's uh, I think what they did was not too long ago they they added more high strength steel to the platform. So they they actually incremented the platform name from GS to GF. It's it's the same thing. Compare the wheelbase and the width. It's it is the same platform. <laughs> um, they changed some of the the you know steel in it, but it's not appreciably different. Um, there have been some changes and updates over the long period of time. These things have been in production. Um, but you know, that, that consistency is like, I always know what I'm going to get with the outlander sport. You know, it's going to drive. Okay. Uh, the basic suspension geometry feels like it was set up by someone who understands, you know, roll stiffness, uh, and handling. I've always been impressed by that to a degree, you know, like it's essentially an inexpensive compact hatch, but it, it handles itself okay out on the road. Uh, certainly not German, but, um, you know, it's all, it's relatively comfortable. I'm, I'm trying to like go down the list of, of <laughs> positives about it. Cause it's really easy to crap on a 10 year old car, right? But it's a 10 year old car. Of course, it's going to feel kind of behind the curve. Um, you know, well, to, to be brutally honest, it didn't feel all that new, even when it was new. No, it felt 10 years old when it was new. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's loud. It's cheaply built. Uh, it's we're, it's the worst infotainment system ever. I knew before I got in this thing, I would not be able to get it to pair with my phone. Um, and it it wouldn't. Um, but, you know, you get a lot for your money. I'm trying to think of its most direct competitor. And I I keep coming back to like, that's mainly because it doesn't actually cost very much. Right. Well, so the sticker on this and nobody pays sticker for these uh, is, is like twenty six two ninety. Um, that buys you a Forester Limited or like a Honda HRV with uh, it's a little that's a little smaller, but you get the HRV EXL with nav. Um, you can get yourself a RAV4 um, either an LE or you can stretch to you know find a good deal on an XLE trim or like a Hyundai Tucson Sport with all wheel drive. So you think about those competitors and then, uh, or even other cars they make you think of. And do you, I don't think the outlander sport can really hold court in that kind of company. I'm not going to argue with you on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. So let's, let's put it this way. When the last time I had an outlander sport to drive, I couldn't even bring myself to write a review of it. Yeah, I just feel bad being such a jerk about it like that. Like, I will. It's not a car I would recommend. Um, I certainly wouldn't spend my own money on it. But if you're looking for a new car with a lot of stuff that's relatively comfortable, it's going to drive okay. Um, You know, I was concerned enough about the reliability ratings and stuff that, you know, I went and looked and it's actually, you know, U.S. News puts it right in the middle of their reliability score. The warranty is good. Uh, you know, it has a five-year, 60,000-mile warranty, 10-year, 100,000 on the powertrain. Like, oh, okay, it's loaded for 25,000. Um, I really don't think resale is going to be there, but yeah. That, that And I guess that's about all I can say is, like, you get a lot of stuff on paper uh, for your dough. 
um, not not really uh, not the class of the field, I suppose. But it's a car. <laughs> yeah. Hey, at, at least you know it's a it's a new vehicle comes with a warranty. Yeah. You know, so if you have any issues, you take it to the dealer and they they fix it and you you know. So, you know, unlike buying a used car where you probably won't get a warranty unless you buy a certified pre-owned and, you know, pay too much for it, um, you know, at least you are getting a warranty. And so there's that. Yeah. I mean, I I, I, it just feels unfair for me to just but like you said, it came out when it came out. It wasn't also sort of the class of the field either. It's not like this was a really good car that just died on the vine. It was always only a mediocre car that they've kept mediocre uh and and that's i mean there's there needs to be a place for that right um i do wonder what what's going to happen with the outlander with the the tie-up with with nissan now too um well i think that you know that actually um you know there's some interesting potential there if they do some platform sharing with nissan uh you know i mean you could i could certainly see you know next generation outlander um and outlander sport you know, perhaps being built off, you know, off the uh, the Rogue and Rogue Sport platforms, um, you know, and then, you know, maybe getting some, you know, getting a, a replacement for the Mirage, you know, off of, you know, say the micro platform or something like that. So, you know, it, there, you know, there could be some interesting potential there, you know, having a having lower cost variants, you know, off the, you know, sharing the platforms with Nissan. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't seem like that's such a bad thing. Um, yeah. And, you know, also the Outlander Sport is pretty decent looking and it's their top seller. So uh, it's doing some things right. So, yeah, uh, we have belabored this point far too long. We should oh. actually uh, move on unless you had anything Please. else you wanted no, to say. No, no, no. Let's <laughs> let's move on. Uh, the biggest news item that I picked up on this week. I mean, this this has been a news filled week, uh, even now but um gm and opal uh well gm and and psa are actually trying to figure out how to spin opal off to to psa um you know word came that uh, general motors ceo mary barra is very seriously exploring the possibility of selling opal or merging them with or doing some kind of deal with peugeot sa that's from the last time i checked in on this i haven't really looked at it today has there been any more like development with that there there hasn't been any real notable news i I doubt that we will hear anything substantial until they actually have a deal finalized um you know gm has been trying to figure out what to do with opal and Vauxhall for um more than a decade um you know they've been you know their their european operations have been losing money for a long long time um, you know, they've they've made some progress in the last few years, um, but, you know, it's still it's a drain. It's been a drain on the business for, you know, since since before GM went through bankruptcy. And so, you know, they, they did a tie, you know, they did their tie up with Fiat back in the early 2000s, um, you know, when. You know, it was hoped that, you know, maybe they could, you know, merge Opal and Vauxhall with Fiat, you know, and that that never transpired. You know, that that didn't work out at all. Um, you know, and then, 
you know, there's been various discussions, you know, during during the whole bankruptcy reorganization, they looked at spinning it off uh, or selling it uh, somewhere. And that never happened. You know, and there's no guarantee that this deal is is going to get finalized either. Um, but uh, it, you know, if it does, you know, it, it raises some interesting possibilities. You know, does um, you know? There's a number of ways that this could that this could go. Um, you know, if they if they sell Opal and Vauxhall to PSA, um, you know, they you know will GM then you know as part of that deal will they get a stake? In PSA, um, you know, I mean, that's the sort of thing that often happens in these kinds of deals is, you know, it's partly cash and partly stock, you know, where, you know, GM could maybe end up with holding, you know, say 20 percent a share or 25 percent share of PSA. Well, is um, that good for them? Do they want that? I mean, to me, PSA makes some interesting cars, but I don't know how much better they'd play. Yeah. Um, well, PSA has actually made quite a quite a bit of a recovery in the last couple of years um, since um, Carlos Tavares took over as CEO. Uh, he came over from um, Renault Nissan, where he was basically second in command to Carlos Ghosn uh, for many years. Uh, he was uh, chief operating officer at the Renault Nissan Alliance. And um, he, <laughs> it just he makes me giggle. <laughs> Sorry. I just think of Renault Alliance. Sorry. Yeah. Moving on. Uh, yeah. He, you know, Tavares was was second in command to Gon, uh, and he left to take over PSA. And they've actually been, you know, they've been on a bit of a roll recently. You know, they uh, you know, they had been selling, you know, their DS models as part of their Citroen lineup. And they now. Last year, they split those out, you know, basically into a separate sub brand. You know, so they have Peugeot, Citroen and DS now as their three brands. And, you know, I guess this would add Opel and Vauxhall to that mix as well. Uh, I did see one report today that, um, you know, regardless of how this transpires, that that uh, Opel uh, is taking a look at uh, becoming an all electric brand. Yeah, I saw that too. Uh, that's interesting. I don't know how good that is. I mean, I think they're just flailing at this point. They're just trying to figure out where Opel fits. And the weird thing for me is like some of the things I like best out of GM have come from Opel or at least uh, the Regal. And I like the Regal. So, <laughs> yeah, well, it, you know, over the last, you know, what, 15 years or so, um, you know, they, they've actually, you know, uh, We've, uh, you know, here in North America, we've had two different GM brands basically take Opals and rebrand them, you know, for the U.S. for the North American market. You know, first it was Saturn, you know, after they they pivoted on Saturn in the early 2000s and stopped giving Saturn unique cars. Um, they basically gave them, you know, turned around and gave them rebranded Opals. Um, and then, you know, when Saturn died off, they switched the, that, that over to Buick. And so Buick ended up with the rebranded Opals, you know, so you had the Regal, um, the, um, the, the Encore, the little, the little crossover, which is, uh, sold in Europe as the Opal Mocha, um, the Cascada, you know, which came from the convertible, which came from Opal. Um, you know, so most of, and also the, um, the Verano, which is the, uh, Astra sedan, uh, so, you know, that all, all, you know, all pretty much all of the Buick lineup has been coming from Opel, uh, over the last, uh, set, you know, eight or nine years, uh, since the bankruptcy reorganization. Yeah. So are they going to 
shoot themselves in the foot like those are the small cars that's that's why they held on to opal in the first place was hey they are european europeans know how to do small cars that people will, will buy and they can make a profit and they try i mean they tried that with the astra that didn't do anything here um it just it, it did not scare the golf <laughs> yeah say. Um, um well you know that that generation of astra when it finally came over here as a saturn you know that was again that was another one that was already you know, that had been around for a while and, you know, it, there were a lot of elements of that car that were more distinctly European, you know, especially in terms of the interior um, and just did not go over well with American buyers. Um, but, you know, in the years since then, you know, in the decade since that car came to the U.S. market, um, you know, the, the market has shifted a bit. You know, and we're, we've seen more convergence, you know, between what you find in European cars and in North American cars uh, and cars in Asia, for that matter. Um, so, you know, today's Opals, you know, are much closer to what you find here. Um, and in fact, you know, a lot of the, you know, I think a lot of the, because they've done so much um, global engineering, you know, and sharing of engineering between um, between Europe and North America and also Asia, uh, particularly uh, with the, the team in South Korea, um, you know, I think a lot of the expertise that normal, you know, that in the past uh, would have been considered to be, you know, the, the realm of Opal, um, you know, now re resides just as much in North America and in Korea as it does in Europe. So I think they probably think that they can, you know, they can engineer, you know, small cars just as well without Opal, without having the, the expense of, of operating Opal and Vauxhall. Um you know, and, and do, do a good job. Um, you know, and I, I suspect they could probably succeed pretty well with that. Yeah. Well, it seems like, um, you know, another thought I had, like nobody likes change. And I think that we've, we've seen what happens when GM, uh, avoids changing because change is hard. Uh, I mean, you know, we, we had to bail them out <laughs> because, because of that. Um, you know, so hanging on to Opal just because change is difficult is probably not, the best move for them. And the more I looked at it, the more uh, I realized, you know, like this, this move looks like GM trying to actually get out of its own way and act more like BMW um, and be a focused automaker that goes where the profit is and just, you know, ruthlessly ties off the bleeders. You know, if you have a model that's not working, you, you, you kill it. Uh, and while, while there are some intriguing and interesting things being done by Opal, like you said, you know, there's so much coming from, uh, asia now uh that maybe they don't need opal and the expensive european labor um and maybe that stuff that can be done elsewhere uh just as well if not better um i have no complaints about any modern gm the way they drive so it's not like opal has any kind of secret lock on how to make a car drive well yeah i mean you know you look at you know gm's small cars today you know the sonic the spark are both primarily engineered in South Korea. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the spark is, is built in South Korea and exported from there. Uh, the Sonic is built here. Uh, but you know, the, the, the team in South Korea has primary engineering and design responsibility for that. The, um, the bolt was done, you know, com, you know, primarily in Korea, you know, and then with a lot of the engineering development work done here in the U S um, the, the, the cruise, you know, is very much uh, a North American model. Uh, so, you know, I think, 
I think it's it's certainly possible that if if GM offloads uh, Opal and Vauxhall to PSA, you know, they could maintain a presence in the European market, you know, with uh, probably with uh, with Chevrolet for mainstream uh, brands and then, you know, Cadillac is their premium models. Well, so they've tried Chevrolet, though. And that was my question. You know, we had a little back channel discussion. Well, I mean, we had I had one back channel email <laughs> among us when we were uh, you know, talk. It came up and, and there was a thing that went around to Forbes freelancers. And I was just like, well, they've tried Chevrolet uh, a couple of times in, in Europe, at least. And it's just like it hasn't hasn't really found any traction. Do they think that like third time's a charm or something or do they even care? <laughs> Um, you know, I guess I'm not sure how much they do care, uh, at this point. Uh, although, you know, if they, you know, I think that they, they had the problem they had before, um, you know, because they did have Opal and Vauxhall is, you know, what's, where do you bring Chevrolet into that market, into that, that region? Um, you know, and the way they did it was basically bringing in cheaper Chevrolets, you know, so going, you know, going for the low end with Chevrolets. But if you look at, you know, the Chevrolets that we have today in North America, you know, they're they're not cheap car. You know, they're they're not they are affordable, but they don't come across as cheap, Um, you know. And so, you know, trying to sell those alongside the Opals, you know, there there was not really a notable difference in, you know, the product quality. And so, I mean, what would be the point of buying a Chevrolet um, you know, you know, trying to trying to push Chevrolet when you also had Opal, you know, in the kind of the same segments, and they've tried to they tried to push Opal up market a little bit, and you know, can, didn't really have that much success with it. I think. Um, so I think if they got rid of the Opal and Vauxhall brands, that you know, they could go back into Europe with Chevrolet again, um, and you know, sell it, you know, in kind of the same the same price segment as what they have done with Opal in the past. And it probably, you know, at least for the the near term, probably wouldn't do as well as Opal uh, has done. But, um, you know, there, I think there's some potential for growth there. You know, and then the other thing too is, you know, maybe they just don't really want to put that much effort into Europe because it has been a stagnant market in terms of overall sales. You know, it's never, you know, since the recession, um, you know, there's been some growth, but it's been, it's been much slower than the growth we've had here in North America. Um, you know, so it's, it's definitely a, a, a slower market um, than here or in China, you know, China is where the, where the big growth has been. Yeah. And that was the next point I, I was going to kind of ponder was that they're headed for serious global competitiveness with, with China. Um, you know, and so they're all GM is already dipping their toe into bringing Chinese uh, market product elsewhere with the envision too. like, that's mm-hmm. kind of an experiment. I think that they're, they're trying to prove that, that test case that um, it's not going to matter if it's even, even if it's built in China, uh, and if you put China as this, the the market that you're designing for, and everybody else gets to, you know, dabble in in those scraps, as it were, I guess um, that's an interesting new model. Um, but it's it's also probably a lot less expensive to develop a car for China and sell it everywhere else than it would be to develop it in the, in Europe or the U.S. and try to sell it into China. Um, so that that's an interesting <coughs> prospect. Yeah, um, you know the. GM is definitely one of the market leaders in China. Um, you know, they've done well there, particularly with Buick and and to a lesser degree with Chevrolet and, and Cadillac. Um, you know, so, 
you know, maybe they just want to focus on, on that and North America and just not even really try very much in Europe where they, they see it, you know, as just a market where there's just not much growth opportunity. Is that, so is that a move that took you by surprise? Like we've, cause I mean, we've seen GM pull back from other markets uh, where it wasn't making enough, you know, or if any profit, uh, you know, Russia and Indonesia, they pulled out of. Um, and mm-hmm. so rather than lose your shirt trying to hammer out success in those conditions, you know, my expectation would be that GM would act like old GM. You know, they'd chase it with volume. Uh, they're not really they're not doing that. They're saying, you know, what, we don't we don't really want that. Um, yeah, no, they're, they're, they're being they're being smart, um, you know, and trying to go for quality sales rather than quantity sales, you know? So, yeah. you know, if they, if they can't make money selling the vehicles, then, then why bother, you know, refocus the business elsewhere where they can make money and, you know, maybe focus on, on things where they're, you know, on new opportunities, you know, things like mobility services. Yeah. Um, you know, and that, that's, you know, I suspect, you know, I, I don't think that they'll, leave the European market entirely that that's you know because I think Europe is going to be one of those places you know where mobility services are going to take off probably much more quickly than here in in the US. Oh, I think it's uh, a much easier sell in Europe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, going going into there um with you know some of the you know with perhaps with with the Lyft brand um, or certainly with with Maven, you know, which they've launched here as a car sharing service, um, you know, maybe some other brand, you know, for mobility services and then using Chevrolet vehicles to support that. Yeah. And that, you know, maybe that's the way that they go back into Europe with Chevrolets, you know, instead of focusing on the retail side, you know, focus on providing the mobility services with Chevrolet vehicles. That's an interesting play. Uh, It's just, it, I I'm interested to watch this happen just because GM had been the world's largest automaker in terms of volume. And it almost seems like they're, you know, they're saying, you know, like guys, y- you can have that volume game, Toyota and Ford and Volkswagen, like fine, whatever, sell more cars than us. We don't care. We're going to focus on profit. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, look, look at the exam, you know, look at the smartphone market as an example, you know, um, Google, you know, with Android has, you know, 80% or more of the global of global smartphone sales. But, you know, Apple with, you know, 20% of global sales of smartphones has 95% of all the profits. Right. You know, so what would you rather have the profits or the volumes? Yeah. And when you have the volume, it's all you talk about is the volume, like, oh, well, most phones are Androids. Like, yeah, it's great. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> but if you don't make any money on it, who cares? Right. And so, well, it'll be fascinating to watch. You mentioned of like uh, Maven and um, mobility sort of brings me to the next topic I wanted to touch on. Uh, We had talked about this a little bit offline was um, just what's going on with um, ride sharing and uh, Uber and companies like that. and I know you you actually spoke with uh, a particular company out in L.A., uh, CJ and Go. Um, and there's there's one here, Boston based called Fasten that's, um, you know, women centric. Uh, you know, just watching what's going on with with Uber, they're facing strikes and, um, you know, just lots of kind of not great PR. <laughs> um, uh, there's a lot of companies that are adopting Uber style tech. 
that are, mm-hmm. you know, established. Like we have Boston Coach out here and they decided to develop their own app for ride hailing. Um, and they've got the established fleet service and stuff. So um, some of that disruption that Uber brought is is going to power, I think, the established companies. You know, they're going to figure out how to make their service like Uber without actually skirting labor laws, which you know, will be unlike Uber. <laughs> right. Well, you know, the, the key thing, you know, the key thing about Uber that, um, you know, when you, when you look at their, their valuation, you know, every time they, they do a fundraising round and, you know, their, their latest valuation was something, you know, 62, $63 billion uh, based on their latest fundraising round. But the, the reality is what Uber does and what Lyft does and, you know, other ride hailing companies in other parts of the world once you understand the basics of that, I mean, there's not really much of a barrier to entry for new companies to come in and do the same thing. You know, they, even the network effect, you know, there, there's no, there's no cost of changing, you know, it's not like, um, you know, if you going back to the smartphone example, you know, for a moment, um, you know, if you have an iPhone and you've bought a bunch of apps for your iPhone and uh, you decide you want to switch to Android, now you've got to buy all those apps again. Um, You know, there's a barrier, you know, there's a, there's a cost of changing from one service to another, but with ride hailing, there is zero cost to change from one to another. You know, I mean, I've, I've usually had, you know, both the Uber and Lyft apps on my phone. Um, and for the most part, I prefer to use Lyft uh, whenever I can uh, when I'm traveling. Um, you know, but if, if there's no Lyft rides available, then I'll, I'll grab an Uber if I have to. But, you know, there, there's no there's no barrier to entry for new companies coming in and there's no cost for users to change, which makes, um, you know, makes it the, the, makes the business proposition for any of these companies very tenuous. You know, there's, there's nothing, there's no ecosystem to keep people in to, there's no lock-in for any particular service. So you can go and use any of these services at any time. Yeah. The issue I think that other competitors to Uber and Lyft are going to have is that, uh, they're not Uber and Lyft. You know, the one thing that... that the, the, name, brands, the brand recognition. Right. Like, you can go across the country. So, right now, you know, like, if you were here in Boston, you'd be... Uh, you'd be summoning a car via, you know, to, to from Boston Coach or... Um, I forget the other brand they have. They they basically they merged. It was the two. Uh, uh, Devel, I think, is the other uh, chauffeur sort of black car operation out here. Um, but like if you're in Denver, the biggest uh, one of the biggest uh, companies out there is like the Green Cab Cooperative, and it's the same kind of thing. They built their own sort of Uber like uh, thing. Um, you're gonna have to know that and do research if you want to avoid using something like Uber when you're traveling versus like. Yeah, Uber, yeah, fine, whatever. There's been some sketchy stuff with background reports and whatever. I've never had a problem. I've got the app on my phone. It's easy. Why would I, you know, hurt myself trying to do more stuff when I can just do this? Uh, so they they definitely have that sort of first mover advantage. Um, I, I That's the thing that I don't know how these companies solve. Like, yes, you can build an app. You can really copy what they've done and you can, uh, you can do it the right way with a better fleet and with a better, you know, uh, uh, sort of, a, a better do a better job on your HR <laughs> right. so that you've got, well, you know, I, th- I think, you know, what, you know, the, the one group of companies that will potentially have an advantage in this space is the car makers, because like Uber and Lyft, they have name recognition, they have brand recognition. So, you know, if GM or Ford or Mercedes Benz 
um, you know, or any other automaker decides, you know, I mean, well, actually they've already decided to get into these, into this business. You know, they're all, you know, pr- most of the major automakers are uh, either involved uh, in an ownership stake or partnership in some sort of mobility company, um, you know, and in some cases more than one, uh, you know, so, for, you know, Ford has, uh, you know, they've had a long tie up with Zipcar for car sharing, but they also have their own in-house service that they're developing their dynamic shuttle service. They also own uh, a San Francisco based company called Chariot, which back, I think on episode uh, three or four, we had an interview with the CEO of Chariot, um, you know, and they've got their whole smart mobility LLC, uh, subsidiary, you know, um, GM is, you know, got an ownership stake in Lyft. Um, you know, so most of the car, most of the big car makers are developing their own systems or investing in, 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 uh, ride hailing platforms. And I think that their name recognition will be a, a key to making them successful in this, in this space, uh, going forward. Well, yeah, like so certainly like Ford or Mercedes Benz or something like that, that's useful name recognition. But they're 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 either buying or branding, you know, launching a new brand. Um, So they're going to have to say, like, you know, chariot by Ford or powered by Ford or some other way to 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 get that brand recognition in there. So. You well, know, I mean, in the case of Chariot, you know, you see these Ford Transit vans, you know, with a, a wrap, you know, all the way around the, the van, you know, it says Chariot all over the side and has Ford logos on it. I mean, you can't you can't miss these yeah, things running around true. San Francisco and and now Austin. Um, so I think there's there's definitely, uh, you know, they're they're building that brand recognition for those those new brands as as we speak. Yeah, well, Austin is an interesting case because Uber and Lyft actually had a hissy fit and left um, because of the that's regulatory stuff wise, you know, city and and state regulations on on these services uh, make it either hard or difficult for them to do business. And, you know, these companies certainly want less regulation. Uber certainly does. They're, they want to basically say, like, no, we don't need that. We're not this, you know, we're, we're not a cab company, even though. They kind of are, and like you know, the drivers are not our employees, even though they kind of are. Um, so, you know, depending on how hostile or how welcoming the various municipalities are, is going to drive which services are successful or not successful in those locales too. Yeah, no, that's that's a very good point. You know, so um, you know, certainly, you know, Uber is not a not a global company by any stretch. I mean, they operate in a number of countries now, but you know, they also last year they bailed out of the Chinese market entirely. You know, they were, they were losing so much money there that they sold off their, their assets there to uh, Didi Chusing, which is a, a local company in, in China uh, that, you know, does the same thing. So, you know, they have not been, you know, they, while they've had significant success in North America, they, that has not translated globally for them. Well, and it's funny though, that you hear the stories like, uh, the, you know, there's like DD camps, right. Where the drivers will just like park and kind of nap. <laughs> we, we have the same thing here in like Walmart parking lots and stuff, you know, like we've got little camps of Uber drivers. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's just a really interesting thing. And it, it's, uh, it's definitely going to shift the whole industry. So we'll, we'll see, um, how that goes uh in terms of other topics the i mean we're gonna stay on the gm tip a little bit uh that i don't have a ton to say about it but the cruise diesel gets a 52 mile per gallon epa rating which is 
pretty ridiculous. Yeah, uh, it's it's pretty impressive. I mean, it's the it's the most fuel efficient non hybrid um, in the U.S. market now, and you know even even the first generation cruise diesel um, was actually really efficient as well. I mean, it, it got forty seven high a forty seven highway rating, and when I reviewed one a couple of years ago. Um, you know, I easily got 40 miles per gallon combined with the thing, um, you know, without really trying very hard. Um, you know, and the, the first gen cruise diesel, you know, GM, you know, they had, they sold about 2% of cruise sales were the diesel and GM managed to do that. It was pretty much an experiment for GM to see how Americans would, uh, buy, you know, uh, would accept cruise diesel, uh, you know, and they they did that. You know, they were selling about two percent of cruise cruises with the diesel engine, with zero marketing dollars. You know, there was no advertising for this thing. It was basically purely word of mouth. And this time, they're actually making a real push with the diesel, especially now that that Volkswagen is out of the game. Um, you know, GM is is putting this new one point six liter diesel into the cruise, the new Chevy Equinox and the GMC Terrain. And we'll probably you know, if those do OK, we'll probably see it in more models as well. You know, perhaps the Malibu as well. What kind of collateral damage has been done to diesel, though, by Volkswagen's shenanigans? Though? I mean, like, I feel like they made things more difficult for GM and yet GM had this stuff developed and ready to go to market. So it's like, well, we're not going to stop now. We're just going to we'll lose all that money. We're going to have to put on our game face and get this done. That's that's the uh, the multi-million dollar question that we don't know the answer to yet. Um, you know, so far, you know, GM has been very bullish on this thing, on, you know, on this diesel engine. Um, and, you know, they're they're pressing ahead with it. You know, they they have not canceled any of their their plans for you know various diesel models. Uh, same thing with Mazda. You know, at, last week in Chicago, I spoke with Robert Davis and we'll have that interview on next week's show. Uh, but, you know, we talked about diesel and, and he's also quite bullish on, on diesel, especially in the, the uh, crossovers. Um, you know, he definitely thinks that there's, there's um, going to be some demand for that. You know, diesel engines have done well in the trucks, um, particularly in the, in the pickup trucks, you know, uh, Chrysler's had some good success with the, uh, the Ram diesel uh, Ford is uh, you know, they've, they've announced that the 2018 F-150 is going to get a three liter diesel V6. Um, they do pretty well with the diesels in the transit vans. So, you know, I, I think that there's it looks like there's still some some market demand for diesel. And if you're not going to get it from Volkswagen, you know, there's you know, those customers are are going to look elsewhere. Yeah, I we'll see how they do. I mean, I, I certainly think that if they put enough effort and uh, marketing dollars behind it, uh, they can tell a story and get the story they want out there. So. I mean, we'll see how it does. I'm I'm encouraged because I I personally like diesels better than something like hybrids. Although hybrids are, you know, fast becoming very refined and um, you know, not not hard to make a case for. You know, uh, the the nice thing about diesel is you get the efficiency and you're not losing out on you know the trunk space and um you know, cargo room and that kind of stuff. And you don't, yeah, have, it all depends on the application. Yeah. You know, I mean, especially yeah. for for utilities. You know, I think diesels make a lot of sense. Um, you know, for some, for some smaller cars, you know, maybe the, the, um, hybrids make a little more sense, especially if you're doing predominantly city driving where you can take advantage of regenerative braking. Um, if you do mostly highway driving as a lot of Americans do, um, you know, the hybrid is not really very helpful in those situations. And so the, the diesel might be a better option for you. Yeah. Well, 
yet another thing to keep an eye on and see how they do. I honestly like I'm interested in the cruise, but I'm more interested in what Maz is doing because. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, they're launching, they're finally launching the CX-5 diesel this summer and, you know, we'll see how it does. You know, one, one of the things that was interesting last year, I was at a, at a, a briefing um, with some Mazda executives last year and, you know, they, they told us that, you know, uh, since they launched their diesels in the Japanese market a few years ago, they now, you know, now 70% of their sales in the Japanese domestic market are diesels. Wow. Yeah. I was, Japan. I was shocked at that number. How do you get, because diesels have never been big in Japan. Yeah. But um, Mazda has had some real success there with them. Apparently Mazda diesels are yes. big in Japan. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, if they drive like Mazdas, it's it's kind of hard not to like it. You know, I mean, they're, they're certainly going to perform well. And that's, you know, the last time I was in a cruise diesel, uh, it was it was a nice little car. And that was a, a long time ago now. So, I mean, it's going to be even betterer. Uh, yeah, that's if that's a word. Um, all right. Well, did we do we have any questions we wanted to get to? And we're, we'll uh, keep it tight this week. I, I believe we did get a few questions on Twitter uh, this week after you put out the call yesterday. So let's see. Uh, first up uh, from John. Uh, not so much a question as just, uh, I think, a, a comment about uh, Smart announcing that they're going EV only in the U.S. Oh, yeah. market. That was that was another interesting thing. I think that's a really good play for them because they're so hateful in anything other than EV here, the way they're configured. Like they just they don't have a good transmission and, you know, even now, you know, um, yeah, I, I haven't had a chance to drive the latest uh, the new the new smart, uh, but I you know drove both of the first two generations, um, and yeah they they were not not great to say the least. Make make you long for a for a Mitsubishi. Really, <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> hey, at least uh, the Mitsubishis had CVTs, you know that you know yeah. didn't didn't jerk around when you were um, you know, when they were shifting. Well, and that's the thing, like that's that's still kind of like the one application where a CVT is perfect, a little city car like that. Like you're not going to notice the sort of wind up sensation or. Right. Well, well, I mean, that's I mean, you know, the, the smart always seemed like the 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 obvious choice to do, you know, to if you're going to go EV only, you know, that a small, you know, two seat city car like that seemed, was always the obvious choice. And, you know, why they didn't push that harder, um, you know, always it seemed bizarre, but I guess now I they're going to, admit, to. Yeah, I have to admit that I kind of, I kind of forget about smart <laughs> sometimes. Uh, they're they're, I I mean like I kind of even forget they're still like active and making new cars. Um, yeah, you know it's it's been an interesting story here in the, in the U.S. You know when they first launched a decade ago, um, Roger Penske, you know set he was going to be he was the distributor for smart. Uh, you know, he set up a separate company as, you know, within his group of companies um, that was handling, you know, it was Smart USA. And he did the deal with Mercedes Benz uh, to bring in Smart to the U.S. market um, and sell them through his his dealer network. And, um, you know, that when, when they finally got here, you know, they turned out not to be as not to be as fuel efficient as everybody was hoping, especially for its size. Um yeah, and compared to other cars, you know, at the same price point with, you know, more seats, you know, it didn't do that great. And so after a couple of years, he basically 
said, okay, I'm, I'm done. And basically handed it back to Mercedes and Mercedes Benz took it back over and, you know, sold them through Mercedes dealers, but it's, it's never really done that well. Well, and so the issue though, I think was also that, um, that powertrain, like the particular powertrain yeah. they got here in the U.S., it just it it wasn't as good as what they had in Europe. But they weren't going to spend money to you know bring in something different. Um, uh, you know, I I would have been interested to see what it's like with like a manual and that kind of stuff here because that's not what it had. But yeah, all right. Uh, let's see what else we got from uh, Groove. Uh, we had. Uh, What's the newest mass-produced car that is almost completely off the roads today? So I guess what he's asking is, uh, oh. or she, or, you know, what what car is, you know, a relatively recent introduction that, you know, almost doesn't exist on the roads. And That's I, I, super easy. What What's that? Saab 94X. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Every or, time I see one, yeah. I'm like, what is that? Oh yeah. yeah they they are pretty rare. Every once in a while I see one, uh, or even the, 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 the last generation nine, five, the last nine, five. And here in communist new England, we have a few of those, uh, yeah. and I, you know, the people who have them, I'm sure they adore them. Uh, but like they, they are committed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Last, last nine, five I saw was a couple of months ago and it's probably been about six months since the last time I spotted a nine, four X. I've think, seen you know, in, one nine, four, uh, two nine, four X's in, in the wild. Yeah. I've, I've, I've seen maybe three or four. I think, I think some of them, you know, because you know, the, the nine, four X, you know, was the, the last SUV they did that was based on the, it was based on the Chevy Equinox platform. Yeah, it was, um, it was really good. Yeah, but you know it. It's one of the one of the models that you know it was just getting finished up just as the the financial meltdown happened at the end of two thousand eight, and you know they they canceled the Saab brand, um, canceled production of it. They had built, uh, I think maybe about two thousand twenty five hundred of them, and I think you know a bunch of them I think ended up getting sold off to GM employees at you know very cut rate prices, and they auctioned off some. You know, so there's there's you know, there were probably, you know, fewer than 2000 of them that were that were ever sold. Um, and every once in a while, they, they pop up somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I from what I understand, too, like it's it's again, like you're going to run into problems trying to, you know, keep one of those going. Um, you even like don't don't break the windshield. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> there are none. <laughs> um, that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah, that's that's about the newest one I can think of that you don't see anywhere. Um, yeah, I, I can't um, think of anything else. Um, let's see what else do we have. Uh, that was about it from there. Let's see if there was anything in Facebook. I don't think there was any Facebook ones this week. Uh, let's see. Get some likes on Facebook. No. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, uh, no Facebook questions this week. So yeah, I guess that's it for, uh, for listener questions this week. Um, anything else uh, you want to add? Uh, no, I mean, we, we had some kind of like ongoing discussion a little bit last week. I know we, we touched on it and I actually felt a little bit less than prepared about the, the sort of the EPA 
question about abolishing the EPA. And um, the more that unfolds, the more I'm, I'm kind of slightly horrified by what could happen just because uh, you've removed the EPA at the federal level. You're going to end up either with a patchwork um, at the state level or nothing because the money for it comes from the federal level and states are already stretched. To, they, so if they don't have to, they're, they're not going to do the things the EPA is already doing. And uh, again, you know, I don't, I don't think that those problems that the EPA has solved will stay solved without, um, you know, uh, vigilance. So, right. And, you know, the, the thing is a lot of the, the types of things that, you know, the EPA looks after, um, those kinds of problems are not the ones that uh, respect state lines or state or borders, you know, so, you know, um, polluted, uh, underground aquifers, um, you know, they, they tend to stretch across, uh, borders and, yeah. um, it affects people, you know, even in states where, you know, they might want to do something about it. You know, there's not a whole lot you can do. Yeah. Well, I mean, our air quality here in New England takes a hit because of, you know, coal fired power plants in you know places like Ohio. Um, and, you know, so what do you do about that? You know, like we, is Massachusetts going to get in a fight with Ohio because we get their smoke? Yeah. That's, I mean, it's, it's really the sort of thing that you need to, to deal with at the federal level. Yeah. Um, and the argument that uh, China is not doing it, I think you will find that China, uh, they spent the last 25 years industrializing very quickly, uh, but they're also now investing very, very heavily in um, renewables because, uh, you know, being forward looking, uh, I think one of the things that they're they're looking at is like they, they have such a definite air quality problem in so many places. Uh, yeah, I mean, to it, mention you know, the, the, that rapid pollution. industrialization, you know, they've 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 recognized the cost of that yeah. and they are actively trying to do something about it. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, it's just two different sort of systems of running a country <laughs> and investing in things. Let's let's put that out there. Well, in, um, in, in, in some respects, they're getting more alike now. Um, yeah, but uh, let's, let's not delve into that. <laughs> we'll see how that plays out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, so that's, that's something like it, it's an ongoing concern and I don't have much more than yeah, that. Rational to say autocracy it. and irrational autocracy. You know, yeah. So. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just sort of keep up with us on, on Twitter. I've actually been a lot more active on Twitter over the last uh, few weeks. Uh, you know, I even even talked a little bit about the Volvo V90 and how you know I'm I'm kind of disappointed by the the uh, SPA architecture. But we'll we'll see when I get that to drive if they've fixed it. Uh, you should you should have seen it. the brown one they had here at the Detroit Auto Show last month. I bet month. it was gorgeous. It was. I would. That's a car. Like even as disappointing as I find the SPA cars to to drive, I would park it. <laughs> Just look at it. Like it. It. They look so good. Like they look like a million bucks inside and out. Uh. And so I'm. I'm Except I'm for the infotainment system. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm anxiously awaiting when I'll be able to buy one of those for like pennies on the pound, uh, which is how <laughs> modern Volvos have have gone. Um. You know, that that was my entry into Volvo was like, oh, yeah, it's just that's an expensive European luxury car to fix. Uh, you can you can buy that for 500 bucks uh, <laughs> and then fix it yourself. Yeah, I learned a lot. Um, yeah. My my last my last experiences were a little bit frustrating because of all the modern technology. And I it really soured me on automatic transmissions again because. You know, clutches are pretty simple. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're not, not a whole lot to break. 
Um, but yeah, so find us on Twitter. Uh, we are at Wheelbearings, no vowels. Um, we are on Facebook. Wheelbearings Cast, actually. Uh, Wheelbearings Cast. I'm sorry. Uh, yes. But yeah, uh, no vowels and Wheelbearings, but there's an A in Cast. Um, <laughs> no, actually, there isn't. We oh, okay. I completely screwed it's, that up. We're, we're completely devoid of vowels. No vowels. Uh, <laughs> uh, you are at Sam Abul Semed uh, on Twitter. Uh, on Twitter, and I mean, just look for my name anywhere, and you know, and you'll uh, you'll find me. I, you know, everything is under my name. Um, and one uh, one other thing I wanted to mention is I put up on um, uh, on the site on wheelbearings.media. There's a link to uh, a survey um if uh you know if you if you're listening uh if you wouldn't mind uh taking a couple of minutes to fill out a survey uh let us know a little bit about uh, about you um you know at some point we hope to maybe get some ads on the show maybe not we'll see um you know if anybody wants to, to pay us a little bit but it would help us to know a little bit of demographic information um so you can if you go to the site at wheelbearings.media uh right at the top of the page there there's a link uh, or just go to uh, bit.ly slash wb survey 17 um and we would really appreciate that and then uh tell all your friends about the show and you know get them to yeah, subscribe too. we are we're building an audience it, it keeps growing steadily um we keep uh trying to do episodes that are topical and interesting so keep the feedback coming um certainly you know where to find us uh give us some some more reviews uh, if you care to if you have time on uh, itunes and all of those things and until next week uh that's wheel bearings see ya When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.